The sermon this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. One in Christ. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace that might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together in the dwelling place, for by God, by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jen. Um, Good morning again, um, and welcome to Risen. Uh, It's good to see all of you. If you're visiting us for the first time, uh, I'm Pastor Rich, and we are actually going through a sermon series of our core values. Uh, We have eight of them, all right? And uh, so it's taken us two months going over one a week. Uh, We're on our seventh one. Um, You can take a listen to them or or check them out on our website, you know, all eight of them. But today's core value is diversity. And, um, you know, we were thinking about what to name this core value, whether we want to do diversity, racial reconciliation. Uh, We don't know. Um, We know that both sort of phrases may trigger different kinds of emotions and thoughts and feelings. So, um, you know, uh, maybe the title isn't the most important part of the sermon, but maybe maybe just the message that's coming from the Word of God. But I just want to read to you sort of our description under our core value, uh, diversity. This is what it reads. Uh, It's on our website too, right? Um, It starts off with Psalm 86 verse 9. And I have this behind me on the screen. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. We want to be a church that welcomes all the different members in the body of Christ in order that we may fully experience God in all his glory. Jesus Christ has created one new people, the church, out of many races. Revelation 7, 9-10 says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's eternal plan for history will end in a great multicultural worship service. We want to experience a taste of that joy right now. So that's sort of our, um, you know, description of our core value uh, that we, you know, really came together as a church and really hashed out what our eight core values will be for several months before we launched. Um, And I won't be able to cover everything in regard to the topic of diversity, of course, in in just one sermon. And I'm really just going to touch some principles uh, that our text addresses. But I hope 
and I pray that it's going to set some biblical guidelines uh, for us as individuals and as a church in today's world. You know, I really do believe that we do need to learn how to uh, communicate um, in safe, uh, empowering, um, unbiased, and sort of encouraging ways. I think our rhetoric is, is probably one of the ways that we can grow um, in regards to this conversation. But let's get started. Uh, three things today. We're going to take a look at first uh, separation, and then we're going to take a look at peace, and then we're going to take a unity. All right? Separation, peace, and unity. You know, if you take a look at verse 11 uh, in your passage, I wonder if I, do I, yeah, you have two different groups of people in the Ephesian church, right? You have what Paul says, the circumcision, right? And then you have what Paul says, the uncircumcision. Kind of weird to uh, uh, identify people uh, through circumcision, but that's just how it was uh, in the, you know, in the Middle East during that time, you know? Um, you know, you see up here, right, the circumcision refers to the Jews, and the uncircumcision refers to the Gentiles. And the word Gentile is a Latin word from the fourth century that I don't know why it's still in our translation, okay? It's a Latin word that just means um, nations, right? Uh, the Greek word is really ethnes. It's, where the, it's the word where we get ethnicity, right? So really what Paul is saying is that um, the way that the world was sort of identified in the Middle East, right, 2,000 years ago, was the Jews that were circumcised, right? And they, they obeyed and followed this very, like, strict Old Covenant, Old Testament law, and then the rest of the world who weren't circumcised, right? You see, in the ancient world, Jewish people used this word ethnes, or Gentiles, to refer to everyone else besides them, right? Um, at this point in the history of our passage, you see Israel and the other nations were at the very best. You know, uh, I think that when we read passages, like we're so used to a phrase like this, like this is not, this is very like a racially charged phrase here, you know? Um, and so, you know, when we, when we read something like this, we may think, oh, okay, but at the very best, you, we might think they're different, but at the very worst, uh, the Jews and the other nations were separated, they were hostile, and they were racist towards one another, right? Uh, for example, they weren't alike physically, of course. You know, the Jews were Middle Eastern, um, and the Gentiles in Ephesus were a hodgepodge of Turkish natives with Western European Greeks, uh, with Persian influence from the Ottoman Empire, and with Roman influence from the Roman occupation. So they were very diverse Right? They were very mixed. They looked different. They ate different. They spoke differently. They interacted differently. They had different hobbies, different values. They were really, really, really different. Of course, secondly, they were different culturally. Right? The Jews practiced circumcisions. The Gentiles were like, that's crazy. We don't do that. Right? Third, they weren't like religiously. Jews went to the synagogue. They believed in the Old Testament writings. And the Ephesians believed in a little bit of everything. Right? There were temples in Ephesus promising everything from money to fertility to health and to beauty. And this may be probably the, the most different. Uh, they weren't alike politically. Okay? Uh, because of the constant warfare in the Middle East, there was this deep 
enmity, there was this deep hatred. I mean, depending on who was conquering who, they were slaves of one another in different points of history. And so these two groups typically would never ever step into each other's homes, right? Uh, Jews considered uncircumcised, the Gentiles unclean. And so to even be among them, they'd be in sin, right? Now today, uh, we probably don't experience, you know, being in sort of uh, in Western American, modern American, modern Western times, we probably don't experience this this Jewish and non-Jewish tension that we see here in the New Testament, right? Um, But we still have our own separation. Uh, We still have our own hostility. We still have our own racism, right? And I'll specifically say in the States because I don't live anywhere else. My experience is in the States. You know, our country has made tremendous progress in regards to racial racial equality, but definitely, you know, whether it's uh, suppressed or whether it's outward, uh, you know, racism is still causing uh, violence, injustice, anger, uh, territorialism, you know, division. You know, according to the scriptures, every race is made in the image of God. And therefore, every culture and ethnicity is a blessing from God. And it's totally fine to be proud of the good things your country or culture or race does, right? Totally fine. But friends, there's a fine line between love for your race and racism, right? There's a fine line between love for your culture and country and prejudice. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. Uh, This is what he writes. It is not easy to draw an exact line between ascribing value to something and assigning it absolute value. There is no precise way to define when national or ethnic pride has crossed over into racism. But there are occasions where a person's preference for their own has to be tempered or it will inevitably lead to injustice, unfairness, and racism towards others. Right? This is what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, there is a fine line. There's no formula, you know, an appendice of, you know, how, how pride of, uh, proud of your race or culture uh, that, 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 that you can be, but he's saying that there is a fine line. There is a fine line. Um, and crossing over this line can happen explicitly or implicitly, right? Uh, you know, explicit forms of racism are, are like physical violence and uh, verbal assault and discrimination, And then there are these more implicit forms of racism uh, that are sort of simple, like snap judgments, right? Um, Assumptions and and stereotypes that we make of each other. Um, uh, And so um, let me give some examples of these sort of implicit forms of racism. You know, once a year, um, our denomination holds uh, a general assembly where all the pastors and elders get together and uh, we talk about pertinent issues, and one of those uh, being racism, and, and how to grow towards racial unity. Um, and uh, in one of, one of his talks, uh, it, it, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Alex Jun, he participated in a panel called How to Advance Ethnic, Use, Ethnic Unity. And he's a professor at Azusa Pacific uh, University in Southern California. Um, he's also sort of an elder at his church. And, and in his talk, he gives an example of implicit racism, right? And this is what he says. You can, even, you can Google it, 
uh, you can watch it. Um, he says this, if someone were to look at me, they would notice that I'm Asian. Uh, they, but they might assume that I'm good at math or engineering. Uh, but they would never have guessed that I teach education, right? Um, he goes on to explain that one might uh, mind going, one wouldn't mind going to church with him, but one may never be able to see him as uh, their elder or pastor. Um, one may want to be friends with him and learn more about his culture, but one might implicitly draw the line in making him their brother-in-law or son-in-law, right? And um, this doesn't just happen with, you know, he's Asian American, it happens with every race, right? There are all these implicit biases, these lines that we draw, and we don't know it, um, and, and, it's, it's, and what Dr. Alex Jones is saying is that that's implicitly racist, right? And today in our text, we see Paul address this racial tension, right? He's addressing it of course, not, in, not only just in the world, but in the church. And, and that's the first thing we see. That's the first point we see here, that whether it's explicit or implicit racism, the Bible doesn't shy away from it, right? I mean, man, it talks about it so much. This brings us to the second thing we see in our passage, peace, right? So we see, man, there is separation, right? There is this distinction that, that has just been made throughout history. You know, we're not living in a special time throughout the beginning of the world, there has been this separation. Uh, there has been racism. But then in the second thing we see here is we see peace. If you take a look with me at verse 13, um, it starts off with two words, but now, right? But now. In the Greek, the phrase is nuni day. And out of the 18 times this phrase is used in the New Testament, Paul uses it 16 times. Paul loves this phrase, but now. Bible scholar R.C. Sproul calls these two words the most beautiful words in Paul's letters. This is what Paul is saying. Before there's sin, before there is division, before there is war, before there is separation, before there is racism, but now. But now Jesus Christ is our peace. But now we're reconciled to God. But now we're reconciled to one another. But now the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. That's what Paul is saying, right? The past before Christ was separation, but now in Christ we are reconciled to one another. And then in verse 17, he says something that's really confusing that just really throws us off, all, of, all of us off. He says, he, we are reconciled in Christ by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in, do I have this, expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, right? So Paul says, okay, separation before, but now we have peace. And he says this, this the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down by abolishing the law of commandments as expressed in ordinances. Now that's just a long-winded way of saying the things that God has commanded Israel to do, right? The law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So what Paul is saying, the law is done. And one of those things that Israel was required to do was circumcision, right? And what he's saying is like circumcision is done, the division is done, the difference is done, the separation is done. And circumcision goes back to Genesis 17. And in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham this. 
This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So from the beginning, circumcision was one of the main marks, right, of following the God of the Bible. But throughout Israel's history, they fell away from God and over time, circumcision became more sort of of this cultural identity marker, okay? You see, what was originally supposed to signify Israel's commitment to God simply became a cultural identity marker. And this was so severe that in Acts chapter 11, verse 3, uh, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, is criticized for eating with uncircumcised men. He's criticized for eating with people who are not his race. In Acts chapter 11, verses 3, this is what um, it says, right? Those throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with him. Right? So you see here this, 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 this symbol that was supposed to represent Israel's relationship with God had become this cultural identity marker, right? Ethnic pride, cultural pride had assumed absolute value and it sort of crossed over to racism. And we do this all the time, right? Um, we not only do this as racism, we, we do this as Christians, right? Uh, we do this with our political party. And what Paul is saying is, look, but now God has put to death the hate, <laughs> right? God has put to death the racism. In Christ, God is doing this because at the end of the day, what Paul says throughout his letters is that Christ has put to death the engine behind hate, which is this radical and tragic sin of self-centeredness in every human heart. Right? That's the engine that Paul says is behind our ethnic pride, our cultural pride, our racial pride, is the radical and tragic sin of self-centeredness in every human heart. Paul, Paul says throughout this passage that Jesus has put an end to this through the cross, with his blood, in his flesh, all by grace. And if you're, uh, if you're new to Christianity, this teaching of the cross can sound very foreign to you. You know, why blood? Why the cross? Why the flesh? So I'm just going to try to explain the cross, the teaching of the cross, by the way of a story. Uh, many of you probably remember this event. In 2015, uh, nine African Americans were killed in a hate crime during a Bible study um, at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And the following week, uh, a memorial service was held with President uh, Barack Obama delivering the eulogy for the victims. And this isn't a plug uh, for a specific party or view. Um, you know, I quote Democrats, Republicans, Christians, atheists, whomever, okay, <laughs> that I believe can uh, help us uh, gain some relevance and insight. Um, so this is, but this is what Obama uh, said in his eulogy. You know, 
before I quote him, you know, before this, you know, there was all kinds of finger pointing, all kinds of more divisive rhetoric that was happening. Of course, there was outrage, but there was still a lot of divisive rhetoric out there. But this is what President Obama says. He says, I have this too behind me on the screen. This whole week, I've been reflecting on this idea of grace. According to the Christian tradition, grace is not earned. Grace is not merited. It's not something we deserve. Rather, grace is the free and benevolent favor of God. We may not have earned this grace with our rancor and complacency, our short-sightedness and fear of each other, but we got it all the same. We don't earn grace. We're all sinners. We don't deserve it, but God gave it to us anyway. And that reservoir of goodness, if we can find that grace, anything is possible. If we can tap into that grace, that reservoir of goodness, everything can change. Now, President Obama is not telling us exactly where we can find that grace, does he? But the Apostle Paul does. Paul tells us that we find that grace, we can tap into that reservoir of goodness, that reservoir of sacrificial love, that reservoir of forgiveness and hope and unity in the unconditional, irreversible forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Right? And the more that, that we are connected to the reservoir of Jesus, to the vine, we experience this power and grace of forgiveness, not only just for ourselves, you know, relationally with God, but for others. And not just others like our friends or our family member that, that we're getting in conflict, conflict with, but our enemies, right? The worst kind of enemies with the worst kind of past. The goodness of the gospel changes everything. That's how peace is made. Uh, that's how peace has come. But what happens after you have peace? Paul tells us peace is not where we stay. He says we're united, right? Which leads us to the third thing we see in our text, and that's unity. Ephesians, uh, in, the, in chapter 2, verse 18 to 22, right? Paul goes, he starts with separation, he then talks about peace, and now he's moving forward towards unity. And this is what he says. Through Jesus, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, right? But we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Jesus, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So friends, the teaching here is, is pretty simple, right? When we place our trust and faith in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, we not only become one with Jesus, who is the head, but we become one with each other, whether we like it or not, right? We are all adopted into the same family. That's the spiritual truth. You know, when I, uh, when I do premarital counseling with a couple, um, one of the first things I tell them is, neither of you will remain the same person, right? Uh, marriage will change you so much that neither of you will be the individual you were before you were married. 
you'll become a blend, right? You'll become a union, a mix. And for two people to hold everything dear to their individuality, to their personal preference, to their personal conviction defeats the purpose of marriage. And actually it works against the union, the power, the goodness, and the nature of that union. Right? Think about it this way. When you mix colors red and yellow together, you don't get separate red and yellow, right? You get orange. And a good thorough union of these two colors will give you something beautiful and something new. And in the same way, becoming a Christian is to be married spiritually to Jesus and you're connected with him and then you're connected with what he desires, you're connected with what he cares about and you're thoroughly mixing him into your life. You cannot remain the same person you were before you married him. Jesus begins to transform your red. Jesus begins to transform their yellow. And all of a sudden the church, whether it's a local church or whether it's the universal church, you pray and you pursue orange. You cannot be red and Christian. You cannot be yellow and Christian. You have to understand that God is making you orange, which is obviously set out in the word of God. And what this means, friends, um, as the color of Jesus mixes into your soul, you will be compelled and God will constantly prick you to love others who are different from you. Because that is essentially what Jesus has done for us. Uh, the difference that, that we experience here, which is racial, is not even close, closely compared to the experience that God experienced between us, which is, not, which is not a race, it's a qualitative, essential difference of being. This is what Jack Miller says uh, in his book, The Mission of the Church. And I have this behind us. He says this, One of the controlling biblical, biblical metaphors for the church is a city on a hill whose visible behavior shines outward and shows the world the beauty and the glory and the love of God. Therefore, the reality of the gospel thrusts the church into the specific practice of deliberately building relationships with others across traditional cultural barriers. Racism, classism, and cultural or group favoritism is rooted out of our hearts with the gospel. In the presence of the gospel, it is like water sliding off a duck's back. The gospel is resistant to it. So I'm just going to share uh, just three, three sort of brief applications before we end. Um, just three ones. So this, the first one is this. Uh, friends, uh, don't settle. Right? Um, when it comes to the Christian life or the church, uh, don't settle for something less than what Jesus died for, all right? Uh, verse 21, Paul is saying that we're being joined together, right? Uh, that God tell, calls us a holy temple. He's, he's saying, you are so one with me and you're going, to be, you're going to demonstrate this forgiveness with each other so much so that my spirit will fall down on the church and people will look at the church and they'll see, how is this happening? How is this possible? Right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul calls us Jesus' body. Right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is what Paul says. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. 
What Paul is saying is Christ gave up his literal body on the cross so that he can receive the church as his new body. Right? And so to be part of God's people is to say I'm part of Jesus' body. I'm not only connected to Jesus, and man, I get to experience the love and the power and the grace and the hope and the strength and the eternity of God, but I'm also connected to the body, which is every single person right, that, that believes and trusts in Jesus. And so interaction with other people in the body of Christ is a necessary mixing and blending and, and sharing and compromising and growing in our uh, oneness. And uh, this isn't easy, right? I mean, you know, just naturally, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you're going to probably attract people who look like you, right? That's just natural comfort. You know, you have your natural cultural preferences when it comes to music and food and things to do. So it's not easy, right? And, and those are beautiful things because God could have made us all one race, but he didn't, right? And so those are beautiful and unique blessings. But there's tremendous hope for us because if you look at, if you look at the scriptures, God used this uh, very ethnocentric country, um, Israel, and boom, right? Now Christianity has gone to the ends of the earth, right? And so it's a continual, not only challenge to us, but just it, it definitely an encouragement to our faith in what God can do if we trust and if we follow him. So first, don't settle. Don't settle for a watered-down version of Jesus and his church. Secondly, um, you know, I, I mentioned how we can be explicitly or implicitly biased, and so we all have our implicit biases. We do, you know, whether it's gender-based, uh, you know, whether it's racial-based, whether it's cultural-based, uh, we have them, you know, um, let's repent of those, right? Um, Alex John, uh, in that same talk, he gives an analogy that particular churches uh, can be like particular houses for one type of animal, right? And so he gives this illustration, he says, imagine there's this house and it's filled with giraffes and therefore made for giraffes. But one day, an elephant needed a place to stay. And so this elephant comes into this home, but he has a difficult time adjusting to this home. He couldn't fit in some of the doors, right? He couldn't reach some of the food. And the giraffes would tell him that he was too short or that he was too wide. And their attitude towards the elephant was, what's wrong with you? You need to be more like us. And the point that Dr. Jun was making was that rather than trying to get people to adjust uh, to an ethnic or cultural majority, we want there to be many expressions of culture and race seeking to learn and grow from each other, right? Knowing that the culture of Christ, the, the culture of the gospel is our ultimate defining cultural identity, right? And so even, you know, our board, you know, we have different ethnicities on that board and they're all giving us different kinds of feedback. And, you know, it's coming from a different perspective and we're, we're trying to listen to that board and we're trying to, uh, we want to be a church that, that is more outward facing, right? Always constantly pursuing that. Right, before we're, you know, before we're uh, Asian American or Hispanic American or African American or Anglo American, right, our first and highest loyalty is Christian. That's really what, that's, you know, that's really what Paul's saying. And then lastly, um, we're definitely going to need to practice forgiveness, right? I mean, just being different, um, you know, we, we might say things that will offend each other. We might think things that will offend each other. And it's very easy then to just say, I've tried it. It's not worth it. Um, but in these moments, you know, I want to encourage you um, 
that being a person of peace is not just actively uh, loving people, but it's also reacting to sin with forgiveness and grace. Um, There's an article I came across written by a pastor, and this is what he wrote. He said, Christians acknowledge themselves as sinners, but have a difficult time being apologetic. But if you believe yourself to be a sinner, you should be saying sorry at least once a day. And if you believe yourself to be forgiven, you should be forgiving at least once a day. And uh, I understand, you know, like, um, you know, uh, the cultural, uh, racial climate, uh, man, there's just so much, um, so many shots taken at each other that, you know, no one wants to give an inch. Uh, But what Paul is telling us is, but now, right? But now, before separation, but now in Christ. So forgiveness um, is one of the main ways that I believe the church will be able to be racially reconciled to each other. Eleanor Roosevelt once said, it isn't enough to talk about peace. One must believe in it. And it isn't enough to believe in it. One must work at it. And she's absolutely right. It is much easier to talk about peace and much more difficult to put into action. Uh, But when we look at the word of God, when we look at the life and, and the death of Christ, we realize that difficult is an understatement. Peace required a divine act of God. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 calls Jesus the Prince of Peace, right? But now, right, the Prince of Peace is here. He's amongst us and he's in us. Here there is no Greek and Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian or slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Gracious God, Lord, we confess that, uh, you know, we have sinned against you and we have sinned against each other. Father, we have not been as one in the spirit as we could be. And um, whether it's an implicit or explicit or even just a passive resignation to ignore um, what's happening and to really ignore this, man, this impulse that we see from the Apostle Paul, this, this desire and this passion to see what Jesus has done applied to our relationships, um, and to our rancor and divisiveness. And Father, we ask that you would help us um, to know that the greatest divide that has been traversed is the chasm between us and you. And yet, Father, you forgive us unconditionally, sacrificially, irreversibly. You were shamed and you were scorned. Your own family left you. Your 12 disciples left you. 
your own people and their enemies crucifies you. And that's what it took to unite us to you. And that's what it took to unite us to each other. And for our Father, we are a forgetful people and we can get caught up in our own comfort and perspectives and defenses. But the cross reminds us that defenses and pride do not reconcile the world to God, but humility and grace, love and forgiveness did. And if our purpose is to become more like you, well then, Father, would you allow us to pick up our cross and place our faith that the love of Christ is going to reconcile us and not logic or defense. Would you allow us to heal, to forgive? Would you allow us to have faith that there is a God that looks down upon us with tremendous grace, tremendous forgiveness, hope, and power and strength to see that, Lord, we cannot do this on our own. But upon humble reliance, upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, you will be able to do uh, what no man or woman can do what no race or ethnicity can do. And that is to unite us who are separated and to bring peace and to build us into a holy temple where your spirit falls down and you are glorified in all your majesty and perfection. So, Father, we put our trust in you. And we ask that you would fulfill your promise in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.